we're going to have our Bible reading now. Um, so it will be on the screen behind me or in the pamphlets that were on your seats or in your Bibles. And we're reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who is to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ, or Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's longing to visit Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open to me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Thanks, Eleni. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to dig into Romans. Romans has uh, probably been one of the most influential books down through uh, history. It has transformed many people's lives and particularly um, transformed my life as I understood what it was for me to be someone who was an enemy of God uh, because of sin, and that the only way that I could know God was through Jesus and having faith in Him. And, uh, And I can stand here today, not saying that I understand everything about Romans. It's a hugely complex book, um, but I can certainly understand uh, what it means for me in my everyday life. It's one of the reasons why I trust in Jesus. It's one of the reasons why I keep on trusting in Jesus. And, uh, and I hope that over these next uh, number of weeks um, for you guys, as we dig into Romans 1 to 5, um, that he will not just, uh, you'll not just get information about Romans, that, that actually the Holy Spirit will really truly um, use that to bring about transformation in your life. Maybe for you to see Jesus for the first time, and to actually know what the gospel is all about, um, or even just to kind of dig you in deeper and to help you continue and to put your trust in Jesus. So I'm going to pray um, for that now, and, uh, and I hope that you pray with me, and then we'll get stuck in um, to the beginning of Romans. 
And Father God, I just um, thank you so much for this book. I, I thank you, Lord, that, um, that in it you explain to us very clearly and give us your word um, about your son. And uh, Lord God, I, I just pray that by your spirit you will open up our hearts. You will help us to see the necessity it is to really understand what it is that you're saying here and how that might impact our lives, either through um, just seeing who you are for the first time or seeing in a more deep and full way and that helps us to see how much you love us and what that means for us as we live our lives for you. Um, so, Father God, would you do that for us now by your Spirit and in and through your Word for your glory? Amen. I remember uh, back in 2008, I went for an interview at a Bible college. And, uh, and during that interview, I get asked one of the scariest questions ever. Right? I was sitting in this small staff room, and there were a couple of Bible college lecturers sitting kind of like right across from me. And uh, they both looked me straight in the eyes, and they asked this question. What is the gospel, and what does it mean for us? What is the gospel, and what does it mean for us? And I kind of be honest with you, at that point, my heart just sank, right? Because I'd prepared all sorts of other questions like, can we trust the Bible? Um, is it historically accurate? And um, what would you say to someone if they kind of said to you that they didn't trust in, that there was a God? And what would you kind of say? I'd prepared for many, many questions, but not for this one. I just thought that it was such a simple question, that it was kind of so rudimentary and, and, and not really all that relevant to an interview that we needed to get into Bible college. Now, before I tell you what I said in that interview, here's what I want you to do. I want you to either get your pen and your handout that you've received today or your phone, and I want to give you an opportunity to answer that question. I'm not going to ask you to share it with the person beside you. I'm not going to ask you to kind of shout it out or submit it as an essay or anything like that. Um, it doesn't matter if you're someone who thinks you've got it down pat or if you're someone who's here and, and you're just checking out Jesus. Um, that's okay. I, I would love for you all to do this and not write down something that you think I might like or that you think is just the right answer. I want you to actually answer this in terms of what you really think. You got it? So I want you to get out your phone, get a pen and a piece of paper, whatever it might be, and answer this question, what is the gospel, and what does it mean for us? And I'm going to give you around about one minute, which is what I should have taken in the interview, right, to answer that question. What is the gospel, and what does it mean for us? Off you go. It actually feels like an exam room in here, you know, like everything's silent.
give you another 20 seconds. Time's up, pen's down. Um, you can submit your answers later. I wonder how you found that. I wonder if you've actually done something like that before. Just try to answer a simple question. What is the gospel and what does it mean for us? I can't actually remember fully what it was that I said in that interview, but I remember kind of just just going off in one, right? I was like rambling on, trying to squeeze in all of these like buzzwords, things that I wasn't even sure that I knew what, what they meant. And I tried to wrap it all up in and this kind of like two ways to live type thing. Have you been around Christian circles for a while? You know what that is. I said something like, well, in the beginning, God made the world and he made absolutely everything in it. And, and, and we broke it through this thing called total depravity. And I wasn't even sure that at that stage that that really meant sin. And so God needed to come into the world. I think that's called the incarnation. And I'm kind of like chucking all of these other things out saying, hey, and he did that for our sin. It was like penal substitutionary atonement. And I had no idea what that meant. And um, so that we could know God. And so so that we could have eternal life. And, and even though I knew what eternal life was, I didn't even really know kind of the extent of really what that meant for me. And they just looked at me with a smile. And they didn't say anything else. And I can remember just sitting there going, my goodness, like, have, I, have I got it right? Did I, did I say it right? Did I, did I say too much? Am, am I going to actually get into college? I just had no idea. They just... I want to say to you today that that question and what you put down on your piece of paper in response to that question is way more important than getting into a college. I want to say to you that the answer to that question that you might have put down on your piece of paper is something that is massive, massive implications for your life. Implications for your relationship with God. Implications where, for where you view where you might go after this life. Implications about how you might face death. Implications for your assurance as a Christian, for how you kind of think about your eternal security. Implications for how you even just live out the everyday Christian life. What you put down in that piece of paper is way, way more important than you getting into college. And it is way, way more important And for the Christians in Rome who were receiving this letter from Paul, which is actually arguably one of the most theologically complex books in the Bible, right? But yet, he kind of kicks them off with highlighting just the simple part of the gospel of God. Because you see, Paul knows that it doesn't matter how much they can say theological buzzwords. It doesn't matter how many answers that they can answer about God, about the Bible, or about apologetics or anything else. If they do not know what the gospel is and what that means for them and what its purpose is in this world, then it kind of just pretty much means nothing. Which is why 
Actually, the whole way throughout this book of Romans, Paul is really just on about the gospel. He's actually on about the gospel of God for which he has been called to proclaim to the nations for God's glory, right? And, and as he kind of goes throughout the, this book, what he does is simply this. He commends the gospel and he defends the gospel. But he does that because he wants the Roman church and he wants you guys to actually be enriched and built up in the gospel so that you might not just understand it so that you can come to have life in Jesus, but you actually see how important it is to continue in your life with Jesus. And so over these next uh, number of weeks, that's what we're going to be digging into. We're going to be working out what this looks like to understand the gospel of God, to live it out by faith um, in your life and then together as a church. But today, what we're going to look at is God's message. We're going to look at three things. The content of God's message, the result of God's message, and the purpose of God's message. Essentially, we're going to ask, what is the gospel and what does that mean for us. Are you ready? And let's jump in. The content of God's message. And um, the first thing that we see here, um, when we look at Paul's explanation of the gospel um, of God's message, which is the way kind of like he puts it, or God's gospel, it's something that I reckon just shocks me every time I read it. And it's this: the gospel is not about me. The gospel's not about me. The gospel's not about you. It's about Jesus, God's son, isn't it? It's very clear there. And specifically, Paul kind of um, sums up what God's message is in four words. He would have absolutely nailed this interview, right? Have a look at verse four, and you'll see four words. Paul's explanation of the gospel, here it is. Jesus Christ is Lord. What is the gospel? What is the content of God's message that Paul's highlighting here to the Romans? Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel's about Jesus. It's not about us. Now, it is good news for us. Absolutely it is, but we'll get to that in a moment. Firstly, and most importantly, the gospel is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and there are two ideas that are wrapped up in this that, that, that Paul is either assuming or he really wants us to get. And um, these are things that have been promised beforehand in the prophets and in the scriptures, which is a way of kind of talking about what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. And the first is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ is not his surname but his title, right? It's more like a job description. He is the Messiah, the Savior. And, and ever since sin entered into the world, the way back in Genesis 3, and God had made promises through the prophets, you get it? Kind of like in the Old Testament. And that he made promises that he would save the world by sending someone to come in and deal with the impact of sin and death in this world to enable them to have a relationship with God. 
And over and over again, if you actually look at the Old Testament, over and over again, we see God making promises concerning His Son who would come into the world and save people from sin and death. And in fact, in the Old Testament, you get all sorts of descriptions about this Messiah, right? You kind of read things like this Messiah will be someone who was born in Bethlehem. That this Messiah would be someone who was born of a virgin. That there would be nothing particularly striking about this, this man and in his looks and, and in his stature. But he would be someone who would kind of heal the blind. He would be someone who would bring comfort to the broken. We kind of even read and are told through the promises and the prophets of the Old Testament how this Messiah would suffer, and how he would die. That even though he would die a horrible death, no bones on his body would be broken. And it even goes into kind of telling us where he would be buried. And let me just say something to you. If you know nothing of the Old Testament, which we never expect that you do when you walk in through the doors of established church, here's what I want to say. Jesus fulfills every single one of those things that were written hundreds of years before he ever walked on this earth. He fulfilled what God had promised. But Paul also tells us that this Savior or this Messiah would also be the Lord, which I think is kind of like one of the biggest things that he's pushing towards here. That this Savior that was promised would be the King he would be the sovereign, not just a king over Israel, not just a king over a country and a small group of people, but this person, this Messiah, would actually be the king of kings. He would be the king over all countries, over all people, in all places, at all times, for all of eternity. And I just want to pull you back to one of those promises in the Old Testament, and it comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And verse 11, um, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, King David here, um, one of the many saviors of the people of Israel that God sent, um, basically was sitting in his palace in Jerusalem, and he was planning on building a temple for God, a thing that he called a house for God, um, and a kingdom for his descendants, for all the people that would come after him. And then God spoke these words to him right through a prophet named Nathan. And, and this is what Nathan said. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. In other words, when he dies, I will raise up for you your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. The Lord is this king. The Lord is a king who would particularly be a descendant of David and be someone who would have a throne that lasts forever. Why would the throne last forever? It's because it wouldn't be thwarted by death. It wouldn't be impacted by the impact of sin in our world. 
Now, there were many other saviors that came along after David. There were many other kings that came along after David. But guess what happened to every single one of them? Tell me. They all died. They were all subject to the result of sin in this world, apart from one person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul tells us, listen to, the, listen to the language here. According to his earthly life, have a look, was a descendant of David. But also at the same time in verse 4, through the Spirit of holiness, that's another way of talking about the Holy Spirit, was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Now, now do you see what I'm kind of pushing towards here? Jesus, the Christ, was David's son. He was a descendant of David, flesh and blood. But there's something very, very different about this Savior. Instead of going to rest with all of the rest of his descendants, when Jesus dies, after three days, he rises again. Death doesn't hold this Savior down. And because of that, he is appointed the Son of God in power. Not because he wasn't the Son of God beforehand. Not because he had just become the Son of God at that point. He always was the Son of God. But in his resurrection, when he defeated death and was raised by the Spirit, he became the Son of God in power. Now, the key thing here is this little in par bit. That's the important part because what it's doing is it's contrasting, right? It's contrasting that Jesus, the Son of God, when He walked on this earth, He kind of came into this world as a baby, didn't He? He came into this world in weakness. He humbled Himself like a servant. He was flogged and He was beaten and He died a terrible death, none of which looked powerful. None of which looked like He was going to establish a kingdom forever. Until... The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Then he became the Son of God in power. The one who defeated death. And because of that, because death did not hold him, Jesus is the one that they're talking about here in 2 Samuel 7, and the one who is the Lord of all. All kingdoms, all peoples, all places, all times, forever. And that's good news for you. That's good news for me. That's good news for everyone. And that's the content of God's message that, that Paul's kind of declaring here. But I just want to say something to you. This is only good news if we can say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You might be able to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and, and, and that's true, but we actually have to be able to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, my Lord. That, that he is the one who saved me from sin and death. That he is my Savior. And that he is the Lord of my life. My number one. The one who calls the shots. The one who tells me how to live in such a way that I, like Paul, 
might actually call myself a slave or a servant of this Christ. Did you notice the way that Paul introduces himself? I, Paul, a servant of the gospel of God. Why? Because this Jesus, he is not only his Savior, but he is the Lord. And he is not only Paul's Lord, but he is the Lord of each and every person in this world, each and every person that ever lived, each and every person that ever will live. And that is good news for you if you can say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Let me ask you, can you say that today? Is he your Christ? Is Jesus your Savior? Is he your Lord? Can you say that? Do you believe that? Because you see, it's only here then that we um, see the result of God's message what does this mean for us? Have a look at verse 5. Through him, that is Jesus Christ our Lord, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, this is a little bit tricky. Um, it's hard to get our heads around because what Paul could be talking about here in verse 5 is he could be talking about the we in terms of all of us. We as in you guys, the Romans, and me, and my bunch of people that are kind of with me. And um, he could also be talking about that plus us, which normally when we're reading something that's written to the Romans or anywhere in the Bible, it also applies to us. Or it could just be this funny Greek thing, right? And, and it, it's a little bit weird where um, he can actually use the word we just to refer to himself. Now, I don't really get my, I can't really get my head around that. I know that it's a thing. Um, but it could just be here that Paul is talking about the grace that he has received and the apostleship that he has received, or maybe even the grace of apostleship, which in some ways is right, isn't it? But because you see, we're not apostles in the same sense that Paul is an apostle. What's an apostle? Well, I think according to Paul, and as we look at the Bible, an apostle is a messenger or particularly an eyewitness of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus who has been called to be a messenger of that gospel. That's Paul. And in this case, Paul is a capital A apostle. That's not us. But there is a sense where it kind of is, right? And I hope you're following along here because I think what's going on is Paul is being deliberately ambiguous. The result of trusting in God's message is that we receive grace. And, and grace is getting something good from God that we don't deserve, right? And I think we get a glimpse of this when you come down to verse 7, when Paul actually gets around to um, saying g'day to the church that he's writing to. Um, in ancient times, uh, that normally happens second, whereas for us, it, it happens first. Um, but listen to the way that he responds or that he refers to the Roman church here, because I think you get the same idea, grace and apostleship coming through. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, right? The, the grace that the Romans received was that they were loved by God. 
And, and this is something that wasn't deserved. And, and, and Paul actually goes into explaining how undeserved this really was, because you see, all of us, according to Paul, were naturally just enemies of God and people who rejected His Lordship. We actually put ourselves as the Lord over our lives rather than Jesus as the Lord over everything. And, and Paul kind of says, because of that, you do not deserve God's love. You do not deserve relationship with God. But yet, because of Jesus and because of trusting in Him by faith, they received grace. And the grace that they received was that they would be loved by this God. Now, just let that sink in for a second. If Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, you are loved by God. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are loved by the one who made the heavens and the earth. By the one who set the world into motion and sustains absolutely everything in it. You are loved by that God. If you have responded to this message by faith, the message of Jesus Christ our Lord, then you are loved by God. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. It doesn't matter what your background is, whether it be religious or whatever else. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many bad things that you've done or how much you view that you've rejected God. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you are loved by God. And that love established church is completely unshakable. Let me jump you forward to Romans chapter 8, verse 38. And you're going to have to wait until 2020 before we dig into this part of Romans. Um, so it's just kind of an excuse to keep on coming back. Um, but I want to help you to see Paul's view of the grace of God's love for you. This is what he says. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's grace to you, isn't it? that you would be loved by God and that there would be nothing that could separate you from that love because of God's message, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we don't deserve that. That's crazy, isn't it? Do you think about that when you think about what the gospel means for you? You see how important that question really is. When we dig into what that means for us, how does that actually impact the way that we view our lives? Because this is what it means for you. You have received grace, but then like the Romans, you've also been called to be His holy people. Now, there's many things that you can kind of pull out of this phrase, but let me just um, highlight one that I think helps us see the connection between verse 7 and verse 5. And it's the idea um, in being called to be a holy people, it means that we've been set aside for a particular purpose. 
And, and in a broad sense, um, the purpose here we see Paul talking about later on in Romans 12:1, and um, that we are people that have been set aside to present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, that we basically give Him everything and we serve Him with everything. But there is a particular part of that as we give our lives to Jesus where we are called to be messengers of God's message, Jesus Christ is Lord. You see where I'm going? Now, I think we get this clearly in 1 Peter 2, 9. You do see it throughout Romans, right? But, but I think we get it very clearly in 1 Peter 2, 9, where we, we see this similar language again of being called God's holy people. And uh, we see in there that we are to declare, as God's holy people, as a royal priesthood, we are to declare the praises of God who brought us out of darkness and into His glorious light. This is Peter's way of saying, from a time where you didn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, to a time where Jesus was your Lord and your Savior, from darkness to light. You see, the result of God's message is that we are people who have been set aside, who have been called to be people that declare God's gospel. And, and in this sense, I want to say it's kind of like a little a apostle, right? We have received grace and apostleship. Not in the same way that Paul has received it. Not as a big A apostle, but we have been set aside for a particular purpose. And that is not something that is just an optional extra of the gospel. That is just something that is the result of the gospel. You receive the love of God. You receive being set apart and called to be one who is a herald or a messenger of that love of God. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Not a big A apostle, but a little A apostle. And, and we see here that we do this so that this message of God might go to the nations for his name's sake, which is the very last point, and the purpose of God's message. That, that's really it. Have a look again at verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles, which is just basically a word that describes non-Jews, um, but actually it's probably better to put in there the nations or different peoples, and to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. It's interesting here, isn't it, that the purpose of all of this is not really anything to do with us. Isn't it? This is why the gospel that kind of places us at the center of it kind of seems to fall a little bit short because it's not us who is at the center of this. The gospel kind of going out is not just for us. It is for God's name's sake, right? It's so that his name might go out to the nations. He is at the center of this message. He is at the center of the purpose of this message. We just simply receive the rewards of it. It's to call all nations to obedience that comes through faith, right? Which is pretty logical. Because you see, if the message of God is that this Lord, the Christ, or that this Jesus, the Christ, and our Lord, if He is Lord of all, then He is Lord of all, isn't He? 
It just kind of seems very, very logical at that point that what we should do with that message is call all people of all nations of all times to his lordship. You know what, guys? Um, I know that you wouldn't say this, um, but I feel as though sometimes as Christians we, we do. We kind of think that Jesus is just Lord over Christian nations. He's not. He's Lord over all nations. He's not just Lord over Christian homes. He's not just Lord over those who kind of need it. You see, if he is Lord of all, then he's Lord of all. And, and we're to call all people to him. And because he is both the Christ and our Lord, that means that he is Lord over Australia. That means he's Lord over Sydney. That means he's Lord over the Shire. That means that he's Lord over Cronulla. That means that he's Lord over the people that you go and connect with after church at El Sol and at the Blind Bear. That means that he's Lord over the surfers, the clubbies, the rich, the poor, the people who consider themselves atheists or agnostic, the people who don't think that they need Jesus. He is Lord over every single one of them. Because he is the Christ who is the Lord, he is the Lord over your family. He is the Lord over your friends, over your colleagues. And, and because of that, we are to call them to put their trust in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Because he is Lord over you, I actually want to call you today if you haven't ever put your trust in Jesus to do that. Because he is your Lord and your Savior. You receive that by faith. And I just want to say that calling all nations leaves no one out, does it? You know what I mean? Like if we're going to call all of the Gentiles, all of the nations, it kind of means all. That's why we support um, the Buchanans who just left to go to the Philippines this week. We're not just on about our own little turf. We want to see the gospel going to all. But I reckon sometimes when it comes to our practice, where we know that Jesus is Lord and that he is Lord of all, I think sometimes, sometimes we don't really believe it the way that we should. You see, here's the way it works out for me at least. Um, sometimes I think that it might be inconvenient to challenge someone who is comfortable, who seems to have their life all together. Surely they don't need Jesus. Jesus is Lord. When we struggle with feeling that what we need is something more than the message Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. But when we kind of think that we need something else to convince people to see who he is, then, then in a way, we're kind of not really trusting in God's message. But Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all people, including the people around you, the people that you're praying for, and we're called to call them in response of obedience that comes from faith. Now, now, what does that mean? It's kind of not that our obedience results in salvation, right? Um, just doing good things doesn't mean um, that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. And Paul refutes that elsewhere, and we'll get into it in another week. Um, but I think the best way to understand that weird phrase is that, that what we're to do is that we're to call people to the obedience of trusting in God's message, right? Because, you see, if Jesus is Lord, the act of responding to his lordship 
by faith is just simply an act of obedience. It's kind of like the logical thing to do. It's, in fact, it's the only right response. It's that we respond to him by faith. And as we do that by faith, then we will have an ongoing obedience to the Lord that comes from faith. Are you with me? It's not that obedience means that we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, but because Jesus Christ is Lord, we will respond in obedience by faith, just in trusting in Him, and by faith we continue in obedience. Because, you see, if the gospel message is that Jesus is Lord, then this is actually your only right response. Respond to Him in obedience by trusting in Him. Respond to Him in obedience by continuing to trust in Him. Now, this matters. Why? It matters because you're not, not just called to obedience. You're not just called to a set of rules. That's never how you will be accepted by God. We are only calling you, right? Especially if you're still checking out Jesus, we would never call you just a set of rules and enjoy the community. We want to call you to Jesus. We want to call you to be obedient just by trusting in Him. It matters because as we call people to this message, right, we're not calling them to a set of values. We're not calling them to an obedience structure and a set of rules. Now, I know that we know this, but it's just worth saying because, you see, all of this flows from that one question, what is the gospel and what does it mean? What we're doing is we're calling to people to an obedience that springs from salvation after they put their trust in Jesus. The answer to this question matters because sometimes when we live out the Christian life, right, we forget this. And, and we kind of fall into this trap of thinking that, okay, yes, um, we are saved by faith, but I kind of continue by my obedience in salvation and, and that somehow I can kind of be the one that thwarts the love of God. But that's not right either. That's not right. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. It matters because sometimes we think that if, um, if it's just the obedience of responding in faith, right, which is kind of like the first way I described it, that then therefore our obedience after that is kind of not all that important. It's just a little bit obsolete. And we, we play all sorts of games and we kind of think, hey, we're anti-authoritarian Australians. We don't really need to follow the rules. I'm already saved by grace. That's okay, but it's not okay according to Paul, you see. It's still an important aspect of the gospel, but we just need to get it right. The purpose of God's message is that people respond in obedience by faith and continue in obedience by faith for His name's sake among the nations. Established, do you see how important that simple question is, what is the gospel and what does it mean for you? Do you see how important it is as you kind of think about how you might call people around us to come to respond to this Jesus? Do you see how important it is actually when it comes to even just living the Christian life? It's hugely important. And if we get it wrong, it can actually have huge implications for our life. So here's what I want you to do just to finish. I want you to go back and look at your bit of paper. And, and I want you just to maybe to, if you need to, make some adjustments to it. This is not the only way to describe the gospel. Paul describes it in many ways. But, but do you need to make any changes?
What is the gospel and what does it mean for us? The content of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That message that we receive is that we receive the grace of God's love and we're set aside to be little a apostles, to be people who are a holy priesthood that declare his praises. And we do that for the purpose of calling all nations in obedience to faith for God's glory. Established as we punch into um, our third year next week, um, would you do that? As you kind of step into Monday um, as a Christian, would you do that? As you keep on exploring um, who Jesus is, would you see that the gospel message is not about you, but it's about Jesus Christ our Lord, and that is good news for you. I'm going to pray. Um, Father God, help us to um, really grasp this, help us to live it out, and help us to do that for your glory, and that as we do that in obedience by faith, that your name will be glorified in our lives, that your name will be glorified in our church, that your name will be glorified in our community, and that your name will be glorified not just in this nation, Father, but in many nations and in all nations around the world. Amen.